0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Second Chronicles, chapter 7. Chapter seven. We'll be reading verses uh, eleven through twenty-two, but uh, the focus of the sermon is on verse fourteen, which is familiar to many of you. But we'll start in verse eleven and reading through the end of the chapter. Second Chronicles, chapter seven. This is the word of God. It contains everything that you and I need for life and godliness. It has no errors uh, in the original language. Uh, languages in which it was given, and we uh, it remains to us the authoritative word of God in good translation. So uh, listen to what God has to say to you. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace, and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among your, among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my commandments, my statutes rather, and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, And she'll go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among the people, among all peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods, and worshiped them, and served them, therefore he has brought all this adversity on them. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, We need you, I need you, very much right now. But all of us here listening need you to, to use your word to search our hearts, to show us ways in which we are not like Jesus and need to be like Jesus, morally speaking. Would you please use your word? Um, Would you please instruct us, rebuke us, encourage us, teach us, that we might better reflect your glory in this world and be agents of uh, positive change in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Kids, um... You children, I'm pretty sure, have heard about this virus thing. I think most of you have probably, even at your age, have probably heard of this thing called a virus that's making a lot of people sick uh, in, our, in our area, and in, in our country, and even around the whole world. You all know about that virus? Well, it's, um, it's something that's going on that's bringing sadness to a lot of people and it's really imposed a real hardship uh, on our country, and indeed around the whole world, and perhaps even hardships in your own family, um, because of what we've had to do as a nation and as a community to, to deal with this uh, virus and uh, to protect people uh, who need protection. This virus, this uh, sickness, I'll call it, is something, children, that God has brought to us. This didn't happen by chance. God is the one who sent this sickness on our land. And He did it for, I think it's some pretty obvious, at least one very obvious reason. Probably multiple reasons. But He did it for, among other reasons, to teach His people things. And that includes you, you children. So you need to listen to this um, and hear how God may want you to change your life, maybe your attitudes, maybe your behavior, Um, because of he's trying to get perhaps your attention, like he is trying to get the attention, I think, of many in the church, including this church, by the way. It's not just the virus that's ravaging our land; um, has been doing so for about a year now. That is uh, troubling our nation. Uh, I'm not telling you adults anything that you don't already know. We are living in very difficult and troubling times in our nation's history. Perhaps not the most difficult, but certainly it's a relatively speaking a pretty unpleasant period in our nation's history. Um, The coronavirus, again, is uh, killing people. I think it's over uh, 430,000. Last I heard, uh, Americans have died, or at least it's attributable to the coronavirus. Whether or not all those people died of coronavirus is is a matter for debate. But the point is, it has caused damage. Uh, It has taken people's lives, and even some of you folks know some of those people. Um, Our economy... Uh, the economy of our nation has been hard hit as a result of the hunkering down of people that people have done out of fear of contracting the virus. Uh, and all the shutdowns also that have been imposed by various governing authorities in our, in our land. Uh, so our economy's, uh, uh, on its heels. The number of folks, people, suffering from anxiety, stress, loneliness, depression, sense of alienation has soared in our land, I have no doubt. I don't have statistics to back that up, but it's it's evident just from anecdotal evidence that I've seen, uh that you've probably seen and that I've read about. Social distancing and mask wearing uh uh though done for a good cause, a good purpose um, by those who do it, including myself, is having the effect of driving people apart, physically and emotionally. Our nation is more politically and culturally divided than it has been in a long time. We have just experienced an election whose results tens of millions of Americans do not trust. We have elected leaders who are ungodly. And to top it all off, there was a very unsettling incident in Capitol Hill, 11, uh, the Capitol, 11 days ago that was very upsetting to many of us as we saw our, uh, our uh, democracy, in effect, under attack by hoodlums. But it's not just the country that's been uh, as in a bad way. So, too, is the church. The evangelical churches, which is the only church. The liberal church is not a church. Uh, Christ has undoubtedly removed his lampstand from those churches, and they don't constitute part of the church, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. I'm pretty sure as far as Jesus is concerned, also. But I'm talking about the evangelical church, the of, of professedly uh, gospel believing churches. The number of people regularly attending such churches has plummeted in recent years, further accelerated by this pandemic. And uh, online church, even though we're doing it, uh, it's uh, causing people to go, I don't need to go to church. I can just watch online. And that's church. It's a poor substitute for church. Even though it may be necessary at times for certain people. Um, historically evangelical denominations are embracing the highly unbiblical tenets of critical race theory and woke Christianity and also are making advocacy for social justice a core part of their mission. Social justice is different than biblical justice, by the way. And even that, societal transformation is not what the church's mission is. The church is a spiritual entity, and its, its mission is a spiritual one, not a cultural one. But many evangelical churches are making that part of their, their thrust of their efforts and their money and their, their conversations and their preaching. It's wrong, but it's getting increasingly uh, common. And then there is that politically correct push in a number of segments of the evangelical world to make sexually perverted desires and activities something that is less than terribly sinful. And even, perhaps, acceptable. Including in our own denomination. Things are not good in the church, in America. Or in many parts of the world. But the focus here today is America. But folks, it is the Lord himself who has brought all of these afflictions and troubles upon both our land and the church, God sovereignly decreed this; He willed it, and He has brought it. And this is, and it's quite apparent to many uh, of us, uh, many uh, godly people to whom I have talked and who I've listened to, and as well as myself, and I think most of you in this congregation, it is quite apparent to most of us that these divinely sent crises and afflictions are judgments on our nation from God. And it's equally apparent that they are simultaneously judgments upon the American church. You say, wait a minute, judgment on the church? Yes, judgment on the church. Let me read to you 1 Peter, chapter 4. I'll start in verse 12, but the last verse is the one that uh, uh, makes the point. Starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. Here's the verse. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? But notice, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. God judges his church. He brings judgments to his church when she acts like the church of Joel's day acted. So it's not just judgments, I don't think, upon the nation it is judgment upon the church that we are seeing as well, and I articulated just a moment ago some of the evidence of that. This leads me to the two points that are, that come to us from uh, that famous verse in, a well-known verse, I should say, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. They are this. They are these, rather. First, we're going to look at what God's people must do when God brings judgment on the church. And then we are going to look at what God promises to do when his people respond appropriately to his judgments upon the church. So those are the two points. First, what God's people must do when God brings judgment upon the church. Uh, In this text, uh, in verse 13, uh, there is a List a representative list. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm I'm confident, but it's a representative list of events that in uh, that in the day when Chronicles was written, perhaps by Ezra, by the way, although we can't be sure of the, uh, who wrote it, but it was, uh, it may well be Ezra. But uh, events that were to trigger the response that we read of here in verse 14. What events uh, does? Um, what did God say when he was speaking to Solomon, which is recorded here in Chronicles, what events were to trigger this response that is mentioned? Well, we read in verse 13 that whenever the Lord shut, the, shut up the heavens so that there was no rain uh, upon Israel for extended periods of time, whenever there was massive drought, people were to do this. Whenever um, a locust plague Uh, devoured the land of all its greenery. Um, God's people were to respond in the way that God mentions here in verse 14. Whenever pestilence came upon the people, plagues, diseases, in large numbers, people were to take note and to respond in the way that God himself says they're to respond here when he was speaking to Solomon, as recorded by Chronicles 2, 2 Chronicles rather. These events that I just mentioned, these three, and again, there are others that could probably be added to it, but all of them were absolute catastrophes in the ancient world. If you didn't have rain, especially in Israel, where there were no major rivers, and the only river that was of consequence was was, uh, 600 feet below uh, sea level, and way off to the uh, off to the east you didn't have if you didn't have rain you didn't have water and you and your animals and your crops just died likewise when locust plagues came and devoured everything that you were going to store away in the winter to feed your family evaporated before your eyes pestilence plagues diseases perhaps not so unlike uh, the coronavirus, when those hit, the people of God in ancient times, they were to respond this way that we're going to look at now in the next few minutes. But before I go to the points uh, uh, in verse 14, notice the causes of each of these disasters if they were to happen in in the ancient world. Um, Notice the cause If I, verse 13, if I, the Lord's speaking here, if I shut up the heavens, if I command the locusts, if I send pestilence, notice that? The Lord is the cause of all these things if they would come, and they did, at later times, from Solomon's day, upon the people of Israel. It was the Lord who was bringing it, is the point. And folks, God is the cause and the decreer of everything that is happening to our nation and our world and the church today. He's not responsible for the sin, but he is the decreer of what's happening. So he says, let's look at what we're supposed to do when things like this and... and, um, and uh the the fracturing of our society that we're seeing in our day uh and the 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 wicked the the rampant wickedness and the uh uh economic decline and so on and so forth. what how we respond well we're, he says in verse 14 and the if by the way uh the sentence starts in verse 13 so you have to borrow the if from the beginning of verse 13 and say if my people who are called by my name so he says my people who are God's people? Well, they are the people, as he says, that are called by his name. What does that mean? To be called by God's name. He's, he's speaking of those who are, who are identified with God's name, and God's name is not God. It's Yahweh. Well, it's we don't know how it was pronounced, but it's the four Hebrew letters, consonants. Uh, that is often, uh, a stab is, that is made at it is Yahweh. It's certainly not Jehovah. That's, uh, that's, that's not even close. Uh, Yahweh might be close. Uh, but we don't know what it is. But the point is, it's that name that he's referring to. My, those who are identified with that name, and that name is, uh, inextricably bound up with God's covenant with Israel. Uh, as is evidenced in, uh, Ezekiel, not Ezekiel, Exodus chapter 6 verses 6 to 8. I'll read it quickly because I want you to know that uh, where this is coming from. But this probably more than any other verse makes that association between the name Yahweh and the covenant that God made uh, with Israel, by the way, which was a, which was an administration of the one covenant of grace. So it's related to the other covenants, the other other covenant administrations and the the covenant of grace itself, ultimately. Verse 6 of Exodus 6. Say therefore, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. This is obviously before that happened when he's speaking to Moses. He goes on, I also... Redeem you with, I will rather also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. That is, that is, that's the sum of the covenant right there. Uh, that, that, that phrase that's found throughout the Old Testament and the New also. It's reiterated in the New. Then I will take you for my people and I will make you my, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, the, covenants, the covenant is being referenced there that God made it with the patriarchs. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And there, I am the Lord. That's I am the four Hebrew consonants, Yahweh, uh, for lack of a better uh, description. So you see, the covenant with Israel, and we are the true Israel, all believers down through the ages, ultimately. The covenant with Israel is bound up with that name, Yahweh. And so... Uh, those who are called by His name designates those who are in covenant with God, right? And in Solomon's day, uh, and also in Ezra's day, if Ezra was the author, uh, that 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 uh, those who were called by uh, excuse me, who were who were in covenant with God, were Israelites, and by the way, they still are. And I am not talking about the folks over in modern day Israel or Jews in the world I'm talking about the church believers we are the true Israel and so that's who's being designated those who are part of the community in which Yahweh's gracious covenant is being worked out in time and space in other words the visible church you folks I can see you all you are part of the visible church called covenant presbyterian church and I hope you're all converted but there might be a there might be a few Here who aren't. I I don't know your hearts. God certainly does, but I don't. But the point is, the, the people that he's referring to here includes both regenerate and unregenerate, unbelieving in other words, members of the visible church. And this appeal is made to anybody who is in the church and says, if you're in the church and this applies to you, you do this. So even if you're an unconverted member of this church or some other, you are one of those who was called by God's name. Now, you are profaning it, if you're unbelieving. Um, you are a covenant breaker, but you're still in covenant. You're just in a covenant that you've broken by not trusting Christ as your only hope of, uh, of forgiveness and right standing before God. And you need to repent now. Okay. God's people. We are told here that if my people humble themselves, uh, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. So he says we are to humble ourselves. That's the first thing we are to do uh, in response to God's judgments upon the church of which we are a part. This requires, this humbling of ourselves before God, requires two things at least. It requires that we have a true understanding of who God is. particularly certain attributes of God that cause us to be in the right frame of humbling, uh, a humble state of mind as we contemplate these attributes. I'm thinking here of God's infinite power, of God's, the fact that God is everywhere and knows everything. Before you ever think a thought, he knows your thought. In fact, he decreed your thought. It requires that you understand how indescribably glorious and majestic he is and exalted he is, how blindingly holy he is, how infinitely just he is. Now, yes, he's gracious and he's loving and he's merciful and those are wonderful things, but these attributes that I just focused on just now particularly are helpful for the humbling part that's necessary to fulfill this command. And it also requires not only that you think about how great and awesome God is and holy God is, but you need to understand, we need to understand, myself included, all of us, we need to have a proper grasp of who we are to be properly humbled. You and I, all of us here, are dust. Animated dust whose sins greatly offend God. And that's true even if you're a believer. Your sins still offend God. Now, he forgives you of them. But they still offend. Sin always offends God. And you and I are dust. We are loved dust. We are forgiven dust. But we are dust. And our our sin, sin still offends God greatly. And it is only by having these two truths, remembering who God is and who we are, it's only by having these truths in the forefront of our thinking, as we approach God, that we will be properly humbled before him. We are told not only to humble ourselves, but then he says, and pray. Now, our humbling almost always is going to come as we pray. Usually, it happens while we pray and start realizing who we're talking to and who we are. We are to pray, though. How, what, 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 is, what is prayer? Well, the shorter catechism. I would commend this to you all to your memorization. Uh, the whole shorter catechism. It's very useful. You'll be a you'll be a better theologian than most ministers in pulpits in our community here, if you have the shorter catechism memorized and believe it and understand it. At any rate, it defines uh, in question uh, 98 uh, prayer for us in a biblical way. Uh, it's, It's gleaned from what the scripture teaches on the subject. And it says that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Let me say it again. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Let me just very, very briefly elaborate on that. Prayer is offering up of our desires to God. We're telling God what's on our heart. What we either want or are thinking or what have you. We're talking to God. We are to we are to pray for things that are agreeable to His will. We are not to pray for things that uh, that we want that God doesn't want. Now, in some cases, we are not sure whether He wants certain things or not. That's where it's why it's usually the uh, I think it's most appropriate to pray, Lord. I ask for this or I pray for this if it would be in accordance with Your will or if it would please You and oh by the way if it if it wouldn't then then by all means say no to my prayer that's the attitude with which we should uh, be praying uh, as we offer up our uh, prayers agreeable to god's will to the best of our understanding of what god's will is uh, based on what scripture says we need to do it in the name of christ what that all that means is consciously dependent upon the fact that it's only jesus that gives me access to god it's only through him that I am heard by God. He's the only reason God is listening to me right now is because of what Jesus did for me and he reconciled me to God and, and, and opened this way for me to com- communicate to God as a child to his father. Fourthly, we are to pray and we are to confess our sins. It is always appropriate when we pray to, to as part of that prayer, short though it may be, to ask for forgiveness for things that uh, we're, the Lord brings to mind that are inappropriate that we've done or said or thought. And then, prayer is also to be accompanied, if, if only briefly, with thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Lord, thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Thank you that you're a gracious God, whatever. We need to pray, folks. The Lord tells us, through uh, in response to uh, judgments that he has uh, apparently brought upon the church. We need to seek God's face, which is really just an elaboration on what it means to pray. It's kind of a, uh, an unpacking a little bit of praying. We are to seek God's face. Now responding to seeking after God, pursuing God in response to God's judgment, perhaps that sounds counterintuitive to you. It's not. It's not. For one thing, when God brings judgments on the church, that doesn't necessarily mean those judgments are directed at you, although they may be, depending on what's going on in your own heart and what you're uh, if you're playing playing games with God. Um, but the point is, either way, even if you have been in sin, even if you are part of the reason God is bringing judgments upon some uh, segment of the church, you still don't run from God, you run to God. We are to seek God's face uh, either way. And this seeking implies a certain intensity of effort. Seeking is not a nonchalant activity, biblically speaking. It's serious business. It's There's an intensity, a, a purposefulness to it. And an eagerness, by the way, also to find that which you are seeking after, which is God himself and his mercies and favor. But in order to have this necessary intensity and eagerness uh, that Uh, That goes along with seeking the face of God in prayer, one needs to be deeply convinced that God is worthy of being sought by you. Now, I say that's important because sometimes we can harbor attitudes in our hearts toward God of where for whatever reason, we really don't want God really, the God of the Bible. Because sin, when we are, when we are full of sin, we are, we are we're idolaters at that point. And we really don't want the true God. And he really isn't that desirable for us, even if we go through the motions of praying to him. It's a danger that we don't really want him, we just want what he can give us. Rather than him, it was the desire of nations? We need, you see, to desire Him in order to be intense about our praying. We need to understand that He is He is He is the most wonderful. I don't know how to how to phrase this. He is the most wonderful one. He is He is the source of all joy, all peace, all blessing, all uh, well being. He is it. Ultimately. And we need to grasp that. So let me ask you this. Do you believe this in your heart? Do you believe that He is something that is desirable in in an intense way? I don't always. I bet you don't always either. But we need to believe this in our heart of hearts. We also need to, as part of this praying and seeking God's face and humbling ourselves and they all go together, we need to turn from our wicked ways. God sends judgments upon both believers and uh, unbelievers and believers and he does this in response to and as a consequence of sin on their part, whether they're believers or unbelievers. He sends judgments upon unbelievers to, pur- to punish them. Giving them a foretaste of hell if they're reprobate unbelievers as opposed to elect unbelievers. It's giving them a fore- and even if they're elect unbelievers, he still may be punishing them at that point because they're unbelievers. He sends judgments upon believers, his judgments, to discipline them, to humble them, and to retrieve them from their waywardness, collectively or individually, and he does this out of love for them. And out of love for you and me, uh, being the them. And the Lord retrieves wayward individuals, wayward congregations, even wayward denominations, by causing these people, individuals, or collective groups, to forsake their sin, sins they've been committing, and to simultaneously flee into God's awaiting arms, if I can put it that way. To turn from sin means to turn to God. You don't just turn from sin and not turn to God. They are two sides of the exact same coin. And this is evident in, uh, in, uh, in Acts chapter 3, I think it is. Maybe it's 4. four. At any rate, I don't, we don't have time to turn there. Which leads me to my second point, and I'm we're going to go a little bit longer. So just hang on to your um, um, heads here. Try to stay in, in, into this. Uh, for the next few minutes. The second point, that leads me to the second point, and that is what God, so the first point is what God's people must do when God brings judgment upon the church, which we've just looked at. Uh, Humble themselves, pray, seek, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. But then we read in this same verse what God promises to do when his people... Respond appropriately to his judgments upon the church, Uh, as I've just articulated in the first point. That's the appropriate response. Here is what God will do in response to that appropriate response, that appropriate actions on the church's part and its uh, its uh, members. He promises, first of all, to hear from heaven. We read there in verse fourteen. But listen, you don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder whether or not. God heard our confession of sin or our pleas for mercy and restoration if we prayed such prayers. He did and does and won't stop doing so. He hears our prayers, the prayers of his penitent people and uh, seeking people. He hears those prayers. as long as your prayer prayer uh, is offered up from a humble, And contrite heart, and is offered in dependence upon Jesus alone for God's acceptance of you and your praying, and your prayer rather, then your prayers absolutely will be heard by God. It can't not happen. He will hear them, that is to say, He will receive those prayers, and He will answer those prayers that you pray as the penitent. Christian who is turning to God from your wicked ways, or who for, for, from, which includes, by the way, you know, uh, spiritual laziness, uh, not, doesn't have to be some gross uh, sin. But whenever you are seeking God in the ways that are described here, God will hear your prayer. He will receive your prayer, He will pay attention to your prayer, and He will answer it. He may say no. He may say wait, or he may say yes, but anyway, it's grace, regardless of which answer it is. He's being gracious to you. Secondly, he promises to forgive your sin if you have sinned. If you come to God um, with a repentant and believing heart that is believing in Jesus for your reconciliation with God, if you come to him uh, the very first time uh, with a repentant heart, uh, you've just been convicted for the first time of how much you deserve God's wrath in hell, and you realize Jesus is your only hope, and you just realized it now. If you come to God the first time that way, then you will be forgiven of your sins by him in his capacity as your judge. As the divine judge, he will, in the courtroom of heaven, Justify you—that is to say, pardon you of your sin and declare you to be righteous in His sight—not because you are or I am, but because Jesus is righteous, perfectly so. He perfectly obeyed God's law, and that perfect obedience is credited to you the moment you believe. And God says, "I see perfection," and that will happen to you by God as your judge. So, if you're not—if you're listening to me out there, or you're here in this room and you've never trusted Jesus, the Jesus that I'm describing, who is 100% God and 100% man, has risen from the dead, bodily is bodily in heaven in a glorified body, and is ruling now over all of the world, and is the only way that you can avoid going to hell, or I can avoid going to hell, and it's only by trusting in Him that you're safe. if you haven't done that, you need to do that right now. Because you might not take another breath five seconds from now. And then it's too late. There is no purgatory. But he will, if you do that, he will forgive you as a righteous judge. And he's still righteous by forgiving a sinner because he has punished your sin in Christ by punishing Christ in your stead if you're one of those people that believes in him because you're elect, because God's given you the ability to believe in him. If you come to him as someone who has previously put your trust in Jesus for your forgiveness, is a Christian. In other words, if you come to him as a Christian, but as a Christian who has been spiritually, how shall we say, less than faithful of late. little treacherous, perhaps? Sunday school. Less than faithful is to be treacherous. But if you come to him as a Christian who has been less than faithful of late and you ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will do so, For absolutely, positively will do so, in his role as your heavenly father. He's already declared, if you're truly a Christian, he's already declared you righteous uh, in his sight, and forgiven you as judge. Now, as a Christian, you have been wayward, you have strayed from the path that he has called you to walk upon, and you've seen the light, and you've gone, Lord, what am I doing? I can't live this way anymore. This, this grieves your heart. You will be forgiven by him as father because you you already have a relationship. It was just the fellowship that was damaged by your waywardness. But you too will be forgiven by God, which is an ongoing forgiveness as as opposed to the once-for-all forgiveness that occurs when you're you're justified, uh, when you believe. And God will gladly I mean gladly. The scriptures tell us gladly. It doesn't matter what I say. It's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that God will gladly forgive you of whatever sin you have committed. Say the unpardonable sin, but Christians can't commit the unpardonable sin. And then he promises not only to hear from heaven to forgive your sin, he promises to heal your land. Or in this case, I'll say their land and he will heal their land. This promise to heal the land of uh, the ancient Israelites meant something different for those ancient Israelites who were under the old covenant, old Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace. It means something different for them than it means for those of us who are under the new covenant. Okay, So I'll explain this briefly. The Old, old Testament Israel was unique among all nations that ever have or ever will exist in human history. There's no nation before Israel that was like Israel. There has been and will be no nation that is like Israel uh, since their demise in 70 AD as a nation. The only nation, Israel was the only nation in the world, uh, 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 a nation state, a nation, I'll just say that, that was ruled by God. God was its ruler acknowledged ruler in a way that was not true in America or England or or whatever and as such as a nation who was ruled by God it was not only a nation it was and uh, it was a church it was the church of old it was a nation church okay so when God made this promise to heal their land uh, uh, originally uh, to uh Solomon people of Solomon's day but also through the writer of 2 uh, Chronicles to the people of the uh, chroniclers uh, day when he promised to heal their land he was um referring to the literal land um that the nation of Israel occupied or that the Jews of the day occupied that that terra firma in the eastern end of the Mediterranean in other words he was promising to in, in answer to this prayer uh, back in that day he was promising to send literal rain uh, upon the literal piece of real estate um, that is, uh, was Israel to alleviate a drought. That's what was, that was how the promise was fulfilled, if, if he withheld rain. He, was, he would remove locusts from portions of Israel over which they were swarming, the literal land of Israel. Or he would, uh, he would stop a plague or a disease that was ravaging the people of God or, the, or their animals or livestock or whatever. That's what it meant uh, originally. But folks, the nation-state, as I've already indicated, described in the Old Testament, Israel, in that way, no longer exists. And I've got news for you, the United States is not Israel. Nor is it even like Israel, in the sense that the United States is not a nation-church. Indeed, no nation on earth is, or ever will be, like Israel again. Israel of the Old Testament. Being both a nation and a church at the same time. Does this mean that God's promise here, "I will heal their land," does this mean that that promise to Israel's um, to heal Israel's land is null and void uh, since Old Old Testament Israel no longer exists? No, it doesn't mean that. It still applies. It just applies in a different way. You see. It's still applicable to New Testament believers because we are part of the same church down through the ages that an Old Testament, excuse me, an Old Testament Israelite believer was a part of. We are part of that same church. It's spiritual Israel. It's the Israel of God that, uh, that Paul talks about in, in Galatians chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 9. The Israel within Israel. It's that Israel. And we're a part of it, just like the Old Testament Jew was, who was a, who was a believer. Just an Old Testament believer. We are we being New Testament believers in Jesus. So promises like this one, that were fulfilled by God in the Old Testament church, invisible, see rain, or locust falling into the Mediterranean, invisible material ways, those same promises are now fulfilled by God to the, for the New Testament church in spiritual ways. So, God's promise to heal Israel of old by healing her physically, restoring the well-being of the physical land, whatever that might entail, is now a promise to uh, the Israel of today, which is the New Testament church, to heal her spiritually. That is, to restore her spiritual well-being. And God still is promising that through these words written here in Second Chronicles. To you, to me, to our denomination, to this, to this church, to our denomination, and even to the evangelical church at large in this country and in other countries of the world that are also similar, suffering similar afflictions uh, under this pandemic and under political craziness and all that. Folks, we are living in very troubled times. And so here's, this is the conclusion, and this is a, an application, a very specific one. We are living in troubled times. The elders talked uh, here uh, recently, um, a little over a week ago. And we are convinced, as a group, that God is judging our nation, and that God is also judging the church at large for the sins, both of the nation, uh, the nation being judged for its sins, and the church is being judged for her sins, collectively. So, in line with examples of this response that we find in Scripture, we uh, are, if you will, officially in our capacity as your religious uh, uh, shepherds, we are calling on each and every one of our church's communicant members um, to fast and pray in the coming two weeks. We're about to have a new president uh, inaugurated this week. Uh, There are going to be lots of changes. Probably most not for the good. Um, The church is continuing to bleed members at an astonishing rate. People are uh, abandoning worship because, hey, I can do it, whatever. It's just me and Jesus. That's lousy theology that causes that kind of uh, attitude. And pastors are to blame for that. But um, the point is, We're calling on you folks to to fast and pray. Now, we're not going to be specific about what you need to do. That's up to you, how you do it. But just by way of example of how you might do this, in the next two weeks, um, you could forego one or more meals on one or more days during each of the two weeks as an example of what you might do. You could choose an entire day to forego eating for an entire day. And then what you do is use that time that you would otherwise use, and if you can, at the very same time when you would normally eat, use it to pray for the church, for the country, for our denomination, which if things get worse, we may have to leave. So we're calling on you, and we're going to do this ourselves. And it's up to each person as to how they apply this. Uh, but uh, we would urge you, we would um, exhort you, to find time in the next couple of weeks to do that. Uh, and it's up—the details of it are up to you. But to spend the time and use this verse in Second Chronicles seven as a as a as a guide for how how to pray and what to do. Uh, but You know, to seek God's face, turn for any sins that you uh, have committed, uh, and pray for spiritual awakening in our nation and for reformation and revival in the church. And I'm not just talking about the PCA when I say that. Although she needs desperately your prayers. And pray for the General Assembly, too, where we're going to make big decisions, probably in September, it looks like. And then two weeks from today, two weeks from today, not next week I won't be here, but two weeks from today when I'm back in town, back in the pulpit, we will have a time of guided corporate prayer during what would normally be our fellowship meal time. We're not going to have the fellowship meal that Sunday. Okay? And what we're going to do is we will we'll conclude the service, uh, uh, give you a moment to use the restrooms or whatever, uh, and, then, uh, and then come back in here five minutes later, back into the room, and we're going to do uh, one of the elders, uh, or maybe a couple of us, will guide us in a kind of time of uh, guided prayer. Um, and uh, if you're afraid to pray, then you don't have to. But uh, for those that are willing to pray out loud, um, they will be doing so, and you can pray along silently. But, but we need to pray together. And we need to beseech the throne of God. And we need to, and by the way, this is important, I'm not accusing, we're not accusing, we're not, as elders, accusing any of you individually of committing sins that have contributed to this apparent outpouring of God's judgment upon our land or upon the American church. We are not pointing the finger at anybody here. But, if you or I... Aren't personally provoking God to pour out His anger upon the greater church? If that's not, uh, if we're not responsible for something like that, we are still part of the church, even if we're not directly a part of the problem. And as members of the greater church, uh, a church under judgment, we each of us need to do our part to seek. God's mercy for the church uh, and for the nation and for the world. And also, it wouldn't hurt to do some soul-searching of our own, each of us, and to ask God to show us ways in which perhaps we might be subtly a part of the problem that has caused God to be angry at the church. I say angry, displeased. I'll put it that way. And cause him to do what's going, what's happening. Churches are closing left and right. So, that's two weeks from today. So please, l- those of you who prepare meals, don't prepare a meal. Do so next week, but not two weeks from today. We're not going to force anybody to stay, but we would urge you to stay. Uh, just for... 45 minutes or so, maybe an hour. uh, Probably an hour. Uh, Just that that time frame when we would normally eat. And just forego eating. Eat a good breakfast if you need that. Um, And uh, and fast uh, as long as you're willing to fast. Um, But uh, this is commended to us. Joel, that's why I read Joel this morning. Uh, There are numerous places in the scriptures where fasting and praying is commended when things are going awry. And uh, so... This there's nothing uh uh unbiblical about this. There's everything that's biblical about it. Um, and uh this is an appropriate time for it, it seems, to your leader, the leaders of your church. And Lord willing, God will use our prayers, hear He will hear our prayers, and may use our prayers to help begin uh the reformation and revival in the greater church that is so desperately needed and the healing of our land the United States, that's so desperately needed as well. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, um, we, uh, we need you to help us, Lord. Um, we need you to help us to know how to do this, by this I mean seeking your face, humbling ourselves, praying for our church, <clears throat> for ourselves, for our nation. We need to know how to go about this in a way that honors you and isn't um, uh, just a formality, that something we go through because somebody told us. But to sincerely look forward to seeking your face as we exercise some self-discipline in our eating um, and having you and praying in ways that are in accordance with your your will for for the church and for our land. Would you please help us to see the importance of this? Would you please give us a desire? to do this, to intercede on behalf of your church and our nation. And Lord, would you please help us each one to see where we are in need of revival, where we are in need of reformation and repentance, and that we would willingly turn from those things that dishonor you that are still a part of our lives. And would you heal us in ways that we need to be healed? And would you please honor yourself through all of this and your Son? We pray in his name. Amen.